Many of you know that uh, our family lived in Cameroon, uh, West Africa from 1993 to 1995. One of the saddest things we witnessed while we were there were the number of, of people who suffered and even died uh, as the result of, treat, of diseases for which there are routine treatments in the US. This was either because treatments were just too expensive for people to afford or were not available at all in Cameroon. Just one example is routine eye care that most of us take for granted. <clears throat> in, de in developing countries like Cameroon, about half of all of the blindness is caused by untreated cataracts. I recently had cataract surgery on both eyes. It was such a simple procedure here in the US. I'm thankful that some of the Baptist hospitals that uh, were established by missionaries in Cameroon and now staffed by uh, national Cameroonians are able to perform cataract surgery, <clears throat> but they're only able to treat a, a tiny fraction of the population. My intent uh, is to use today's message to check our vision and hopefully correct our vision. I'm going to argue that all of us, to a lesser or greater extent, suffer from macular degeneration. You know the symptoms of macular degeneration? The vital center of a person's vision becomes increasingly blurred, while the person usually retains clear vision on the periphery. I believe today's scripture has a cure for that kind of macular degeneration. Think with me about Jesus' interaction with the Jews as it's unfolded, uh, particularly from verse 30 in John 8. I count seven back and forth exchanges between uh, Jesus and the Jews. So how do we get from verse 30, where John tells us many people believed in him, to a situation in which these same people reached down for stones intending to kill him. I mean, could it have anything to do with Jesus questioning their parentage? They claimed that Abraham was their father. Jesus said that if Abraham were their father, they wouldn't be trying to kill him. Well, then they said, well, God's our father. Jesus said that their father was really the devil. But Jesus went on to make claims that just pushed them over the edge. His final claim caused them to pick up stones to kill him on the spot. Let's look together at John 8, uh, beginning with verse 48 and then down to the end. If you have a Bible with you, if a Bible on your phone, uh, please follow along with me. The verses will be up on the screens as well. John 8, 48. <clears throat> the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I did not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died too. 
Whom then do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and, have you seen, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, we are so grateful for having your word to see this astounding encounter between Jesus and the Jews and to hear the outrageous, outlandish claims that your son made. Um, Lord, each of us need to have our vision corrected. And we pray, Father, that you would use this per portion of your word to correct our vision and help us to see clearly who Jesus Christ is and to end up fixing, fixing our gaze on him, that he will be the center and clear. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in our passage for today, we see that the Jews had sunk to the level of name-calling. Samaritans were hated by good religious Jews. They also accused him of being controlled by a demon. Jesus answered that he honored his father. Those possessed by a demon are not going to work to honor God. The son's glory and the father's glory are tied together. When people dishonor the son, they dishonor the father as well. The father promotes the glory of the son. He is the judge who will bring the truth to light. There's just one single opinion that counts, and that's God's opinion. God the Father's opinion of Jesus Christ was clear. He gave glory to his Son. The Son didn't seek his own glory. The Father gave him the glory as the faithful, true, always obedient Son of God. Jesus went on to make another fresh claim. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You see, Jesus here is, is deliberately pushing the envelope. As you read through the four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, you see that he's always in control of these discussions with those challenging him. Jesus knew what their response would be, and he was deliberately leading them in a particular direction. The Jews angrily responded, now we know that you have a demon. Jesus died and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who did Jesus claim to be? Isn't that the central question? 
Isn't, isn't the key issue, isn't it the key issue that each of us must settle in our own minds? Who is this Jesus? As they often did, the Jews took Jesus' words in a, in a totally literal way, as if Jesus was claiming that he would keep everyone who followed him from physically dying. Many people would be content with that kind of eternal life. I think of Woody Allen's honest quote about immortality. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> the Jews thought that that's what Jesus was offering, physical immortality here on earth. To their credit, they understand that if Jesus was really claiming to be able to defeat death, he would be greater than Abraham and all the prophets, all of whom died. Jesus responds that if he was only honoring himself, it would mean nothing. But it's God the Father who honors the beloved Son. That's what counts. The truth is that Jesus knows the Father, but they don't. If Jesus were to show fake modesty and say that he didn't know the Father, he would be lying like them. The reality is that Jesus does know the Father and keeps his word. Now Jesus says the most outrageous thing that he's said up to this point. He's, by making another comparison with Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I mean, do you get the, the importance of Abraham in this whole discussion? The Jews boasted about being God's chosen people and their direct descent from Father Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he, and he saw it and was glad. Well, what does Jesus even mean by that statement? I think the most likely explanation is that Abraham had God's great promise of an offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. It may also include the hints that Abraham was given of the work of Christ through the miraculous birth of Isaac and the provision of the ram in Isaac's place for sacrifice. It can be argued that, that Abraham met Jesus when the Lord appeared to Abraham and Sarah in human form to announce the birth of Isaac. Now, even though they didn't have the full picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ that we have, God revealed his plan to Abraham and the other Old Testament prophets. What do we read in the New Testament? Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul wrote. This is in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter communicated a, a similar truth this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches 
and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what Peter is claiming is that in some manner, God showed each of these Old Testament men and women of faith a part of his plan regarding sending the Son of God into the world to rescue men and women from their sins by his death and resurrection. None of them had the full picture, but God showed each of them pieces and parts of his great plan. That last statement really set the Jews off. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the, the Jews respond with growing disbelief. You are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? They were catching on just how outrageous these claims were that Jesus was making. And then Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, every time you see that, truly, truly, amen, you can listen and know that Jesus is about to, to drop a bombshell. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you, you might hear that, that claim on just the normal outrageous level. Jesus was claiming to have existed before Abraham. Jesus would have had to have been over 2,000 years old to have met Abraham, but he was less than 50. They didn't get Jesus wrong. He was really claiming to have lived before Abraham. But he was claiming so much more. He was claiming that the God who revealed himself throughout the Old Testament, that that was he. It could be that when Jesus called himself I am, that he was claiming to be the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. That encounter is recorded for us in Exodus 3, 10 through 14. God tells Moses that he's going to liberate the Jews from Egypt using Moses as his chosen instrument. Moses voices his concerns about the plan, and he's got a lot of concerns. Moses asks God, now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. It's possible Jesus had that passage of Exodus in mind when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I've become convinced that it's more likely that Jesus was thinking about one or more passages from the prophet Isaiah in which God refers to himself as I am. Here's one of those passages. This comes from Isaiah 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am also the last. Surely my hand formed the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, 
they stand together. The Jews understood clearly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be the God who created the universe, who appeared to Father Abraham, who revealed himself to Moses, who spoke through the Old Testament prophets. That's why they instinctively reached down to pick up stones to throw at him. There's absolutely no question, no question, that Jesus was claiming to be God. You know, because we've been studying the Gospel of John, we shouldn't be surprised by this claim. John's been claiming right from the first verses of John that Jesus is God. Kyle brought that out in his first message in the series. In words that echo the opening verses of Genesis, John began his gospel by boldly, boldly declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were, uh, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In those few verses, John is claiming that the word, Jesus, was with God the Father before the beginning of creation. He was with God, but he was and still is God. John is claiming that Jesus was God's agent in creation. Then John makes the breathtaking statement, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> Jesus was just making clear what he's been hinting at all along. We read this earlier in John 8, uh, verses 23 and 24. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe I am. Once again in verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Then you will know that I am am. Now, at the climax of this conversation, Jesus makes absolutely clear what he's been hinting at all along before Abraham was, I am. He's really claiming to be God in human flesh. There's no way to escape this. Do you understand how far the real message of the Bible is? from the pablum being taught in some churches, the idea that Jesus is no more than a great teacher, maybe even a prophet, who generally taught about what? Love and peace. You don't get that picture from the Bible. It's a picture of Jesus made up by hacking up the Bible and only taking what you like about Jesus. That's the method, that's the method Thomas Jefferson used when he literally took a Bible and scissors and cut it up to, to remove the portions that he didn't feel 
matched up with what he decided in his own mind was the spirit of Jesus. At Harvest, we, we don't put what we feel God should be like ahead of what God says he's like in his word. The entire Old Testament was pointing forward to the time when God would come to earth in human flesh. From the creation of the universe, from Adam and Eve, created in God's image through the fall of Adam and Eve, the, through Noah and the worldwide flood, through God calling and giving great promises to Abraham, through the patriarchs, through the enslavement of God's people in Egypt, through the exodus, uh, through the conquest of the promised land, through the times of the judges, and then the raising up of King David, through the highs and lows of the kings of Judah and Israel, to the captivity in Babylon, through the return and the rebuilding of the temple, all of it was looking forward to God's coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything else that happened in the world during that vast sweep of history was just a footnote to what God was up to. All the mighty empires that rose and fell, all the splendid cities that were built and then destroyed, all the jockeying for power and fame and glory, all the great love affairs, all the battles for turf in which tens of thousands fought and lost their lives, or maybe had their little moment of glory. All the lives and loves and triumphs and defeats of everyday people like us. All that seemed so important at the time was vanity, futility, emptiness, if not tied with God's great kingdom purpose for this world. After the end of the Old Testament, there was a long period of time in which God was absolutely silent. No prophet of God spoke for almost 400 years. Then the silence was broken when an angel from God announced to a virgin called Mary that she would bear a son who would be Emmanuel, God with us, and that his name would be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. On the night of his birth in the little village of Bethlehem, the sky was filled with angels proclaiming his birth to a band of poor shepherds. Jesus would grow up in a working class family, giving total obedience to his parents and obeying every command of God's law. At about 30 years old, Jesus began his public ministry. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, reveal a remarkable man. He taught as one speaking from God with great authority. He backed up his world-shaking claims by healing the sick, freeing people oppressed by demons, even raising the dead. As we, we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen that the Jewish religious authorities had decided already that Jesus must die. It was clear to them here in John 8 that in pointing uh, to himself as the I Am, he was indeed claiming to be the God who appeared to Abraham and Moses and the rest of the prophets. In claiming to have met Abraham, he was claiming to stand outside of time.
He was claiming to be the only way to eternal life and everlasting happiness with God. So you see what's happening here. The Jews were face to face with the I am of the Old Testament clothed in human flesh. But they had macular degeneration. They could not see what was right there in front of their eyes. I am was standing before them. But all they could see was how he was going to undermine their religious trans traditions and way of life and get them in trouble with their Roman conquerors. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, most of the human race has macular degeneration. What should be sharp and clear and at the center of vision has become blurry, while what's at the edge, the, the periphery, is sharp. Many of you have macular degeneration as well. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ have a fatal case. You need to understand clearly what Jesus is claiming, that he was and is the great I am, the creator of the universe who appeared to Abraham and Moses and the prophets throughout the course of human history. He had now appeared in space and time. You have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. You can't be neutral toward this man. I mean, maybe he was a total nutcase. Uh, maybe he was some wicked cult leader. But how then could he give sight to the blind, restore withered limbs, even raise the dead? Are you willing to gamble your eternal destiny by deciding that you can ignore his claim before Abraham was, I am? I'm pleading with you not to ignore his voice. He's pleading with you to entrust your life to him. He said this, as recorded in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It was the great I Am who died on the cross and rose to life three days later so that all who trust in him by faith can have eternal life. Listen, nothing that's going on in your life today is as in anywhere near as important as this that we're talking about this morning. Nothing matters more than seeing Jesus Christ as the great I Am and receiving him into your life as Lord and Savior. My dear unbelieving friend, can't you see? Can't you see that where you stand with him is the most important thing that there is in all of life? But how about all of us here this morning who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ? We too need to be delivered from macular degeneration and have sanctified tunnel vision. All of us focus way too much on what is peripheral 
while not focusing on what should be central. And we need God to correct our vision. Listen, the Bible is not primarily about making us all nice boys and girls who always say please and thank you and yes ma'am and no ma'am. The entire Bible is focused on teaching us to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ so that all other loves and loyalties and passions are pushed to the periphery. Once our vision is right, once our hearts are right, we will do what pleases the Lord. So the Bible is about giving us crystal clear vision at the center so that we see that Jesus Christ deserves central focus in everything. All of history before him was leading up to his birth into the world. All that's really important now is what's centered on Jesus Christ and his plan to create a, a new humanity for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the face of the earth. Listen, Jesus not only deserves to be the center of our lives, he demands that we give him his rightful place at the center. Jesus said this and many other things like this. This is from Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What's more important to you if you're a parent? That your son shoot the winning basket in the big game or your daughter scored the winning goal in the last 10 seconds of her game, or that your son or daughter loves and serves the Lord. Are you and I so preoccupied with our latest toys and technology and social media, sports, that we have no time left for pursuing what's really important? Living for the glory of Christ and his great plan for all of history. Do we care more about our reputations than we care about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ among our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers? Do we care more about advance, advancing our pitiful little agendas than we long for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Oh, how desperately we need the word of God to correct our vision, to see that Jesus Christ and his purposes are at the center of what God is doing in the world and deserve to be at the center of your life and mine. My brothers and sisters, the last thing I want is for this message to be a, a finger-wagging, shame-producing message. I truly want us to have our vision right so that we can be living the only life that counts in the end, a life lived for Christ and his glory. Living with Jesus Christ, the great I am at the center of our lives, is the only way that all the rest of life comes into proper focus. God, God has set it up so that a life that honors Christ is the only life that can truly bring satisfaction in, his, in this life and God's commendation at the end of life. 
believing that the great I am has come into this world to give his life in the place of rebels like us is supposed to fill our hearts with wonder and joy knowing that he rose again, returned to his rightful place in heaven, and is now praying for us, his beloved followers, is the best news that you and I will ever hear. Listen, whatever challenge you're going through right now, believing that you are united by faith with the great I am, is what you most need to put your mind and heart at rest. Here's just one example of how this should work. You know, growing old has become much more unsettling for me than I thought it was going to be. Even though I'm still relatively healthy and active for my age, there are growing signs that my age is catching up with me. What do I need to settle my heart and mind, not to be undone by this? I need to fix my vision firmly on the promises of the great I am. In one of the places in Isaiah where God speaks of himself as the I am, he makes this wonderful promise, uh, a geriatric promise a promise I refer to as the old geezer promise. <laughs> Isaiah 46, 4, even to your old age, I am. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you and I will bear. I will carry and will save. I mean, what greater assurance could God give me that I will not be alone when I walk through aging? and eventually death. The two most important things for us to know about God is that he is both powerful and loving. To put it another way, we need to know that God is both willing and able to carry through on all the promises he made to believers in his word. The testimony of the Bible and countless believers through the centuries is that our God is both powerful and loving, both willing and able. We know that he's more than able. He's the great I am. The great I am created the entire universe and holds it together by the word of his power. And we know that he's rich in love and mercy I mean, we only need to look at the cross to see a love that is immeasurable in its length and width and height and depth. If he was willing to take our place to die for us, for our sins, how can we ever doubt his love, even if we have to face the most difficult of circumstances? You and I can fully rest our souls confidently in Christ, even if like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, we are called to suffer for our faith. I'm going to let God's word have the final word. The writer of the book of Hebrews pictures the Christian life as a race 
in which each of us are engaged. Jesus Christ has run his race and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. How can we run our race strong and faithful to the end? The opening verses of Hebrews 12 tell us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father God, what an astounding uh, passage of Scripture. I pray for my dear unbelieving friends who are here today, that when they walk out of this place, they'll not be able to shake this picture from their mind of Jesus Christ claiming to be the great I am, uh, the creator, sustainer of the universe, the one who laid down his life and took it up again after three days so that all who trust in him could be assured of eternal life, cleansed from sin, given new power to say no to sin. And Lord, I pray for myself and my dear brothers and sisters who are here today that you would constantly use your word uh, to correct our vision. Lord, so often we, we lose focus in the center and get preoccupied by all of the things on the periphery, uh, whatever they are, sports and politics and uh, our technology and so many other things. Lord, use your word to correct our vision so that it, it is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else gets pushed to the edge to its proper place. Uh, Lord, uh, be merciful to us and help us to see Christ for who he is, the great I am, and entrusting our lives to him to be filled with hope and joy and peace in believing. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.